0: volume 1 chapter 6 of a charming fellow this librivox recording is in the public domain a charming fellow by francis eleanor trollope volume 1 chapter 6 it is exceedingly disagreeable to find that a scheme you have set your head on or a prospect which smiles before you is displeasing to the persons who surround you it gives a cold shock to the glow of anticipation algernon did not perhaps care to sympathize very keenly with other folks' pleasure but he certainly desired that they should be pleased with what pleased him, which is not quite the same thing. His mother informed him, perhaps with a dash of the Ancrum colouring, although he have seen how unjustly the worthy lady was suspected of falsehood by Dr. Bodkin on a late occasion, that Mr. Diamond disapproved of his refusing Mr. Philthorpe's offer, and of his resolve to go to London. Dr. Bodkin, Algernon knew, did not approve it, neither did Minnie, although she had never said so in words how unpleasantly chilly people were to be sure mrs errington did not like mr diamond she mistrusted him his silence and gravity his odd sarcastic smiles and taciturn politeness made her uneasy despite the patronizing way in which she had spoken of him to minnie bodkin in her heart she thought the young man to be horribly presuming i am sure he doesn't appreciate you at all algy she declared winding up a list of mr diamond's defects and misdemeanours with this culminating accusation algy had a shrewd notion that mr diamond's appreciation of himself was likely to be a just one and he was a little vexed and discomfited that his tutor had given him no word of praise behind his back mrs errington saw that she had made an impression and began to heighten and embellish her statements accordingly but my dear boy said she how can we expect him to recognise talents like yours gentlemanly talents so to speak the man himself is a mere plodder. why he was a csar at college algy felt himself to be a very generous fellow for continuing to stand up for old diamond as he phrased it well ma'am plenty of great men have been poor scholars dean swift was a csar and dean swift died in a madhouse so you see algy Mrs. Arrington plumed herself a good deal upon this retort, and returned to the attack upon Mr. Diamond with fresh vigour, being one of those persons whose mode of warfare is elephantine, and who, never content with merely killing their enemy, must ponderously stamp and mash every semblance of humanity out of him. Algernon did not like all this. His vanity was, at least during this period of his life, a great deal more vulnerable than his mother's. And she, although she doted on him, would say unpleasant things indignantly repeat mortifying remarks which had been made and in a hundred ways unconsciously wound the sensitive love of approbation which was one of algernon's tenderest not to say weakest points it was all very disagreeable but it was not the worst he had to look forward to there was one person who would be so cast down so despairing at the news of his going away that it would be quite painful for a fellow to witness such grief and yet it could not be expected it could never have been expected that he should stay in Whitford all his life, he must point that out to Rhoda. Poor Rhoda. For ten years, that is to say, for more than half her life, Algernon Errington had been an idol, a hero to her. From the first day when peeping from behind the parlour door she had beheld the strangers enter, mrs Errington, majestic, in a huge hat and plume, such as young readers may have seen in obsolete fashion books, the mode was so absurd fifty years ago, and had none of that simple elegance which distinguishes your costume, my dear young lady, and algy a lovely fair child in a black velvet suit and falling collar from that moment the boy had been a radiant apparition in her imagination how small and poor and shabby she felt as she peeped out of the parlour at that beautiful blooming mother and son not poor and shabby in a milliner's sense of the word but literally of no account or beauty or value in the world little shy motherless thing she had an intense delight in beauty this whitford grocer's daughter and all her little life the craving for beauty in her had been starved not willfully but because the very conception of such food as would wholesomely have fed it was wanting in the people with whom she lived that was a great day when she first by chance attracted mrs errington's notice she was too timid and too simple to scheme for that end as many children would have done although she tremblingly desired it what a surprisingly splendid sight was the tortoise-shell work-box full of amber satin and silver what a delightful revelation the sound of the old harpsichord touched by mrs errington's plump white fingers what a perennial source of wonder and admiration were that lady's accomplishments and condescension and kind soft voice as to algernon there never was such a clever and brilliant little boy at eight years old he could sing little songs to his mother's accompaniment in the sweetest piping voice he could recite little verses he even drew quite so that you could tell or rhoda could his trees houses and men from one another in all the stories his mother told about the greatness of her family and in all the descriptions she gave of her ancestral home in warwickshire rhoda's imagination put in the boy as the central figure of the piece she could see him in the great hall hung round with armour although she knew that he had never been in the family mansion in his life in the grand drawing-room with its purple carpet and gilt furniture above all in the long portrait gallery of which rhoda was never tired of hearing heaven knows how she innocently and mrs errington exercising her hereditary talent embellished and transformed the old brick-house in its deer park or what enchanted landscapes the child at all events conjured up among the gentle slopes and tufted woods of warwickshire even the period of hobbledehoydom, fatal to beauty to grace almost to civilized humanity in most schoolboys algernon passed through triumphantly he had a great sense of humour and fastidious pampered habits of mind and body which enabled him to look down with more or less disdain a good-humoured disdain always algy was never bitter upon the obstreperous youth at whitford grammar school one fight he had he was forced into it by circumstances against his will not that he was a coward but he had a greater and more candidly expressed regard for the ease and comfort of his body than his schoolfellows conceived to be compatible with pluck however our young friend if less stoical was a great deal cleverer than the majority of his peers, and perceiving that the moment had arrived when he must either fight or lose caste altogether, he frankly accepted the former alternative. He fought a boy bigger and heavier than himself, got beaten, not severely but fairly well beaten, and bore his defeat, in the dialect of his compeers, took his licking, admirably. He was quite as popular afterwards as if he had thrashed his adversary, who was a loudish boy, the cock of the school, as to strength had he bruised his way to the perilous glory of being cock of the school himself it would have behoved him to maintain it against all comers which is an anxious and harassing position algy had not vanquished the victor but he had taken his looking like a trump and on the whole may be said to have achieved his reputation at the smallest cost possible under the circumstances his mother and rhoda almost shrieked at beholding his bruised cheek and bleeding lip when he came home one half holiday from the field of battle Algie laughed as well as his swollen features would let him, and calmed their feminine apprehensions. Nor would he accept his fond parents' enthusiastic praise of his heroism, mingled with denunciations of that murderous young ruffian Master Manet. Poor Marm, said the hero, it's all brutal and low enough. We bumped and thumped each other as awkwardly as possible. I fought because I was obliged. And I didn't like it, and I shan't fight again if I can help it. It is so stupid. The young fellow's great charm was to be unaffected. Even his fine gentlemanism sat quite easily on him, and was displayed with the frankest good humour. Some one reproached him once with being more nice than wise. "'We can't all be wise, but we needn't be nasty,' returned Algy, with quaint gravity. His temper was, as Minnie Bodkin had said, nearly perfect. He had a singular knack of disarming anger or hostility. You could not laugh Algernon out of any course he had set his heart upon, a rare kind of strength at his age. But it was ten to one he would laugh you into agreeing with him.' every one of his little gifts and accomplishments was worth twice as much in him as it would have been in clumsier hands if you had a heartache, i do not think that you would have found algy's companionship altogether soothing sorrow is apt to feel the very sunshine cruelly bright and cheerful but if you were merry and wanted society or bored and wanted amusement or dull and wanted exhilarating no better companion could be desired he was genial with his equals affable to his inferiors modest towards his superiors and had not a grain of veneration in his whole composition at seventeen years old algernon left the grammar school but he continued to read with mr diamond for nearly a twelvemonth my son is studying the classics with mr diamond mrs errington would say i can't send my boy to the university where all his forefathers distinguished themselves but he has had the education of a gentleman it was a very desultory kind of reading at the best and it was interrupted by the long midsummer holidays during which mr diamond went away from whitford no one knew exactly whither and during these same holidays mrs errington who said she required change of air had taken lodgings in a little quiet welsh village and obtained mr maxfield's permission to have rhoda with her that was a time of joy for the girl it did not at all detract from rhoda's happiness that she was required to wait hand and foot on mrs errington to bring her her breakfast in bed to trim her caps to mend her stockings to iron out scraps of fine lace and muslin to walk with her when she was minded to stroll into the village to order the dinner to make the pudding a culinary operation too delicate for the fingers of the rustic with whom they lodged to listen to her patroness when it pleased her to talk and to play interminable games of cribbage with her when she was tired of talking all these things were a labour of love to rhoda and mrs errington was kind to the girl in her own way and above all was not algy there those were happy days in the Welsh village on the long, delicious summer afternoons when Mrs. errington was asleep after dinner. Rhoda would sit out of doors with her sewing on a bench under the parlor window so as to be within call of her patroness and Algy would lounge beside her with a book or make short excursions to get her wild flowers, which he would toss into her lap, laughing at her ecstasy of gratitude. Oh, Algy, she would cry, "Oh, how good of you, how lovely they are!" The words written down are not eloquent, but Rhoda's looks and tones made them so they are not half so lovely algernon would answer as properly educated garden flowers nor so sweet either but i know you like that sort of herdage rhoda never forgot those days how should she forget them since it was at this period that algernon first discovered that he was in love with her perhaps he might never have made the discovery if they had stayed in whitford there he saw her as he had seen her since her childhood surrounded by coarse common people and living their life more or less it is not every one who can be expected to recognise your diamond if you set it in lead. Rhoda was always sweet, always gentle, always pretty, but she formed part and parcel of old Max's establishment. When the boy and girl were quite small, she used to help him with his lessons. Her one year's seniority made a greater difference between them then than it did later, and had always been used to do him sisterly services in a hundred ways, and all this was by no means favourable to the young gentleman's falling in love with her. But at Lawn Ryden, Rhoda appeared under quite a different aspect, She looked prettier than ever before, Algernon thought, and perhaps she really was so, for there is no such cosmetic for the complexion as happiness. Apart from her vulgar relations, and treated as a lady by the few strangers with whom they came in contact, it was surprising to find how good her manners were, and how much natural grace she possessed. Mrs. Errington had taught her what may be termed the technicalities of polite behaviour. From her own heart and native sensibility she had learnt the essentials the people in the village turned their heads to admire her as she walked modestly along who could help admiring her Algernon decided that there was not one among the young ladies at whitford who could compare with rhoda she is ten times as pretty as those raw-boned mcdougals and twenty times as well-bred as Alethea docket and ever so much cleverer than miss pawkins he reflected minnie bodkin never came into his head in the list of damsels with whom rhoda could be compared minnie occupied a place apart quite removed from any idea of love-making. Dear little Rhoda, how fond she was of him! Altogether Rhoda appeared in a new light, and the new light became her mightily. Yes, Algy was certainly in love with her, he acknowledged to himself. There was no scene, no declaration. It all came to pass very gradually. In Rhoda the sense of this love stole on as subtly as the dawn. Before she had begun to watch the glowing streaks of rose-color, it was daylight. And then how warm and golden it grew in her little world! how the birds chirped and fluttered, and the flowers breathed sweet breath, and a thousand diamond drops stood in the humblest blades of grass. If she had been nine years old instead of nearly nineteen, she could scarcely have given less heed to the worldly aspects of the situation. Algernon, perhaps more consciously, set aside considerations of the future. He was but a boy, however, and he always had a great gift of enjoying the present moment, and sending janus headed care that looks forward and backward to the deuce. As yet there was no Lord Seely on his horizon no london society no diplomatic career the latter indeed was but an anachronism of his mother's when she spoke of it to mr diamond and Algie at that time had never entertained the idea of it so these two young persons sat side by side on the bench outside the welsh cottage and were as happy as the midsummer days were long but long as the midsummer days were they passed then came the time for going back to whitford the day before their return home rhoda received a shock of pain the first but not the last which she ever felt from this love of hers at these words said carelessly but in a low voice by algy as he lounged at her side watching the sunset rhoda darling you must not say a word to any one about-about you and me you know not say a word what had she to say and to whom no algy she answered in a faint little voice and began to meditate the idea had been presented to her for the first time that it was her duty or algy's duty to drag their secret from its home in fairyland and subject it to the eyes and tongues of mortals but being once there the idea stayed in her mind and would not be banished her father mrs errington what would they say if they knew that that she had dared to love algernon the future began to look terribly hard to her the glittering mist which had hidden it was drawn away like a gauze curtain how could she not have seen it all before would any one believe for evermore that she had been such a child such a fool so selfishly absorbed in her pleasant day-dreams as not to calculate the cost of it for one moment until now oh algy the poor child broke out lifting a pale face and startled eyes to his if we could only go on for ever as we are if it would be always summer and we two could stay in this village and never go back or see any of the people again except father she added hastily and a pang of remorse smote her as her conscience told her that the father who loved her so well and who was so good to her whatever he might be to others, was not at all necessary to the happiness of her existence henceforward. "'Don't let's be miserable now at all events,' returned Algernon cheerfully. "'Look at that purple bar of cloud on the gold. I wonder if I could paint that. I wish I had my colour-box here. The pencil sketches are so dreary after all that color. Rhoda had no doubt that Algernon could paint that or anything else he applied his brush to. After a while, she said, with her heart beating violently, and the colour coming and going in her cheeks, don't you think it would be wrong deceitful to if we not to tell poor rhoda could not frame her sentence and was obliged to leave it unfinished deceitful am i generally deceitful rhoda oh i say don't cry there's a pet don't my darling i can't bear to see you sorry but look here rhoda dear i'm so young yet that it wouldn't do to talk about being in love or anything of that sort though i know i shall never change they would declare i don't know my own mind and would make a joke of it this shot told with rhoda who shrank from ridicule as a sensitive plant shrinks from the north wind and bother my our lives out can't you see old grim griffin's great front teeth grinning at us it was in these terms that algy was wont to allude to that respectable spinster miss elizabeth grimshaw rhoda knew that algy wished and expected her to smile when he said that and she tried to please him but the smile would not come her lip quivered and tears began to gather in her eyes again. She would have sobbed outright if she had tried to speak. The more she thought, the sadder and more frightened she grew. Ridicule was painful, but that was not the worst. Her father, Mrs. Errington, she lay awake half the night terrifying herself with imaginations of their wrath. Algy found an opportunity the next morning to whisper to her a few words, "'Don't look so melancholy, Rhoda. They'll wonder at Whitford. What's the matter if you go back with such a worn face? And as to what you've said about deceit, why we shan't pretend not to love each other look here we must have patience i shall always love you darling and i am sure to get my own way with my mother in the long run i always do so then there would be obstacles to contend with on mrs errington's part and algy acknowledged that there would of course she had known before that it must be so but algy had declared that he would always love her that was the one comforting thought to which she clung rhoda had grown from a child to a woman since yesterday algy was only older by four-and-twenty hours after their return to whitford came mr Philthorpe's letter then his mother's application to lady Seely, brought about by an old acquaintance of mrs errington who lived in london and kept up an intermittent correspondence with her both these events were talked over in rhoda's presence indeed the girl filled the part toward mrs errington that the confidante enacts towards the prima donna in an italian opera mrs errington was always singing sanas to her which so far as rhoda's share in them went might just as well have been uttered in the shape of a soliloquy but the lady was used to her confidant and liked to have her near to take her hand in the impressive passage and to walk up the stage with her during the symphony so rhoda heard algernon's prospects canvassed in her heart she longed that he should accept mr filthorpe's offer it would keep him nearer to her in every sense she had few opportunities of talking with him alone now far fewer than at dear landriden but she was able to say a few words privately to him one afternoon the very afternoon of dr bodkin's whist-party and she timidly hinted that if Algie went to Bristol, instead of to London, amongst all those great folks, she would not feel that she had lost him so completely. "'My dear child!' exclaimed Algie, whose outlook on life had a good deal changed during the last three months. "'How can you talk so? Fancy me on Phil Thorpe's office stool!' "'London is such a long way off, Algie,' murmured the girl plaintively, "'and then, amongst all those grand people, lords and ladies, you may grow different.' upon my word my dear rhoda your appreciation of me is highly flattering for my part it seems to me more likely that i should grow different in the society of bristol tradesmen than amongst my own kith and kin people like myself and my parents in education and manners i am a gentleman rhoda lord seely is not more rhoda shrank back abashed before this magnificent young gentleman such a flourish was very unusual in algernon but the ancram strain in him had been asserting itself lately he was sorry when he saw the poor girl's hurt look and downcast eyes from which the big tears were silently falling one by one he took her in his arms and kissed her pale cheeks and brought a blush on to them and an april smile to her lips and called her his own dear pretty rhoda whom he could never never forget perhaps it would be best to forget me algy she faltered and although his loving words and flatteries and caresses were inexpressibly sweet to her the pain remained at her heart she never again ventured to say a word to him about his plans. She would listen, meekly and admiringly, to his vivid pictures of all the fine things he was to do in the future, pictures in which her figure appeared, like the donor of a great altarpiece, full of splendid saints and golden-crowned angels, kneeling in one corner. And she would sit in silent anguish, whilst Mrs. Errington expatiated on her son's prospects, wherein of late a great alliance played a large part, but she could not rouse herself to elation or enthusiasm. This mattered little to Mrs. Errington, who only required her confidante to stand tolerably still with her back to the audience. But it worried Algernon to see Rhoda's sad, downcast face, irresponsive to any of his bright anticipations. It must be owned that the young fellow's position was not entirely pleasant. Yet his admirable temper and spirits scarcely flagged. He was never cross, except now and then, just a very little to his mother— and if no one else in the world less deserved his ill-humour, at least no one else in the world was so absolutely certain to forgive him for it. End of chapter 6